Amen. You can have a seat. These kids are dismissed. It's good to see you, Mars Hill. Glad that you're here this morning, worshiping with us. We are in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, really 42, down to 47. Another famous passage in our study in the book of Acts. Uh, You've probably heard this text taught or you've studied it yourself, and there's a lot. There's so much here for us to glean from and learn from. Uh, that we'll see this morning. What we've studied so far is in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended, the literal presence of God descended and indwelled His people. They began to speak in multiple languages, and they heard. They heard the gospel proclaimed. They heard the good news. And Peter presents the, the gospel. He calls them to repent. He calls them to trust in, hope in, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, he preaches this message with the gospel in a nutshell, so to speak. He, he says that Jesus really did live, Jesus really did die, Jesus really did raise from the grave, and Jesus really, we saw him ascend. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And it says in the text in verse 37, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They, they were cut to the heart by the scene of Jesus being crucified, which Peter says twice, you crucified him so that... The ownership of their sin, the sinfulness of their sin is visible to them. And it says they were cut to the heart, moved by this reality that we are sinners in need of a desperate Savior. And in God's grace, he provided one. And then what we see in verse 41 is that there is real, legitimate gospel transformation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And then what we get in verse 42 to 47, what we're going to study this morning, is a descriptive summary text of what these early believers immediately began to do. Now, I need to explain that phrase, descriptive summary text. Luke uses multiple summary texts throughout the the book of Acts to transition, to capture what has happened, the result, what they began to do as a result, and then to transition to a new story, a new narrative, something totally different. So as we'll see in the very next chapter, chapter 3, it's Peter and John going up to the temple, and they heal a man who was lame from birth. Totally different scene, totally different setting and totally different point that's being conveyed there. And so between these two scenes of this spectacular supernatural descent of the Spirit and this supernatural act of healing, there's this summary text, this transition text. And this transition summary text gives us descriptive characteristics or heart attitudes or heart commitments of the earliest believers. And the reason we want to be specific about that and say that it's a descriptive summary text rather than prescriptive is that some of the things in this text we can't do. They go to the temple every day. As as the early believers left Jerusalem and went back to where they were from, how do they enact that? How do they continue to go to the temple every day? They can't do that. How do we do that? So there are things in this text that are more descriptive about the heart commitments that they have Rather than being prescriptive, meaning that they must be true in every context, in every church, 100% of the time, to the fullest degree. So what we need to do as we see that is glean from these general characteristics, these principles, these heart commitments that they have, because those general principles and practices are expounded on in the rest of the New Testament, and we can practice as a church. And so what are they? What is it that as a result of this gospel transformation that they begin to commit their lives to? The first thing we see is that they commit their lives 
to gospel teaching. As we'll study the word. God's revealed word of himself. And then they are equally committed to gospel community. There's a vertical dynamic and a horizontal dynamic. And both of these things, as they grow in the depth of both of those things, it overflows into gospel generosity. They have a new profound understanding of who Jesus is and who they are in relation to one another and what their stuff means in all of this. They have a new tight-gripped view of Jesus. And as they grow and seeing him as the priority of all things and this new relation together... Their stuff just becomes inconsequential, secondary. They see the treasure of heaven for who he is, and the treasures of this earth become trinkets in comparison. And all of that, this new commitment to the word, this new commitment to one another, this new profound view of of caring and sharing and giving to one another naturally leads to gospel witness. There's a proclamation and a display of the grace of God in their midst, And they found favor among the broader community. And all of that led to further gospel witness. And so those are our our big themes that we're going to see this morning. There's so many more things that we could see. But those are the big ideas and big general commitments that we can glean from this morning. And so let's first look at gospel teaching. We can begin to see this in in chapter 2, verse 42, the first part. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, immediately we jump to, okay, yeah, right, they, they devote themselves to the Bible. Okay, got it, understand it, let's move on. Let's not just be so quick to, to, to run through the text that way. Let's understand these words. And the first word we need to key in on is devotion, devoted. They were devoted to something. And devoted in this, in this sense, this Greek word, it means to station yourself beside something. It, it really means more than that. It means to attach yourself to something. To tie yourself to something or to lash yourself to something, like lash yourself to the mass, tie yourself, anchor yourself to something. That's what this word devoted means, and that's what they are doing here. But what's the object of their devotion? What's the thing that they commit their lives to, they devote themselves to, anchor themselves to, station themselves next to? It says the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and and immediately makes us ask, okay, well, where did the apostles get their teaching? What is it that they were teaching? We've already had a glimpse of it. Peter stood up and he presents the gospel. As we said, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised from the grave, and Jesus is high and exalted in the reigning, ruling king right now at the right hand of the Father. But where did they get that teaching? Well, we look back to the gospels and we see they walked and talked with Jesus. They interacted with him. They, they learned from him. Jesus taught them repeatedly along the way as they went. He discipled them. They were his disciples, which means learners. They, they submitted their yielded their lives to Jesus, and he instructed them. Right before he left, he commissioned them to go and to teach and to proclaim all that he taught them. And then before he left, he told them, I will send you the Holy Spirit to enable you, to equip you, To recall to mind all that I taught you. And then after Jesus is raised from the grave, he appears to two disciples along the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And in Luke chapter 24, as he's walking along the ways, they don't know what's going on. They're hidden. It says he's hidden from their eyes. They don't know who they're talking to. It says that he began to teach them from the Old Testament, from Moses and the prophets, and instructed how the Old Testament has been painting a picture, a portrait, pointing to him 
all along. So what is it? Where did the apostles get their teaching? Remember, they were the ones that walked and talked with Jesus, commissioned to speak on behalf of Jesus, equipped by the Holy Spirit to speak what Jesus taught them. And what did Jesus teach them? He taught them how the Old Testament has been pointing to him all along, that he is the promised Messiah, the long-awaited promised Messiah. So they're doing exactly what their Messiah is doing, exactly what their rabbi was doing. They're teaching The Old Testament, the Old Testament is coming alive. We've seen it in everything Peter has said up to this point. He's been quoting the Old Testament four times from Psalms, one time from Joel. Over and over again, the Old Testament is being amplified and expounded and explained, telling us all that God promised to do in sending a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. So this is the content that this early church, these earliest believers, these 3,000 attached themselves to, lashed, tied themselves, anchored their life to. They anchored their lives to the teaching of Jesus revealed by the Holy Spirit. This is what we're seeing in this text. Immediately, they are devoted to it. And it's remarkable what it says. The the word teaching can mean instruction. It can be translated teaching. It can be translated instruction. It can be translated doctrine. They've committed their lives to the doctrine of Jesus, to the teaching of Jesus, to the instruction of Jesus. They've anchored themselves to it. They want to know desperately, what was it that cut us? We, we, we believe everything that Peter said, the gospel proclaimed, we believe. It says they believe in the text. We believe this message about Jesus. We want to know more. It's not enough for us to just know it one time. It's not enough for us just to hear it one time. We have to know it more. We want to know it to greater degrees. We want to know it to to greater depths. We want to know this Jesus that you've preached to us. We want to know you walked with him and talked with him and heard from him. What did he say? How did he act? What did he do in that moment? How should we act in light of him? They're committed and devoted to the teaching of Jesus and aligning their lives to him. This is their commitment. This is what they're devoted to. This is what they have, are relentlessly devoted to scouring. They're de- relentlessly de- devoted to scouring the scriptures for Jesus, to understanding him, and to seeing all that the apostles were taught so that they can understand and then align their lives to it. So what are some implications and application for us? There's so much, but just a couple. First... The question isn't whether we will hold to doctrine, it's which doctrine we will hold to. See, many of us think that we, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've said it, just give me Jesus, don't give me doctrine. Just give me Jesus, don't give me all the theology. Just give me Jesus, I don't need all that other stuff. You cannot separate Jesus from doctrine. It's just, it's impossible to do. You cannot have Jesus without the virgin birth. You cannot have Jesus without the fact that he is fully man and fully God. You cannot have Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, Rescuer of the world without the doctrine of the atonement. You can't separate Jesus from doctrine. It's not possible. The two things are, are, are not mutually exclusive. They are intertwined. You have to have doctrine. The early church is not afraid of that. They're not trying to say, just give me heart, just give me experience, just give me the grace and the love, but I don't want to know about truth and all these other things and teaching and doctrine. That's not what they're saying. They're diving deeper into doctrine. They're diving deeper into the teaching and understanding of Jesus' grace and love and mercy. This is what they're devoted to, what they're committed to. Maybe you know other people, friends, family, coworkers that say, 
I don't want Jesus and I don't want doctrine. I don't want either one. I don't, there's no, just get, stop telling me all this absolute true stuff, true truth. There's no such thing. That itself is a doctrine. You can't say there's no doctrine. You're making a doctrinal statement in saying that. You can't say there's no truth. You're making a truth claim when you say that. So whether we want it or not, we live by doctrine. The question is which doctrine will we live by? Will we live by a self-made, pick-and-choose doctrine where I like this about Jesus, but I don't like that, or I like this about the Bible, but I don't like that, or will we submit to God as he has revealed himself in his word and revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus? That's the question that we have to ask because that's the, question, that's the reality that they devoted themselves to. That's not how, they didn't see these two things as separate. They saw them together. They saw that they could not live without Jesus, without teaching, without instruction, without the doctrine. So they, they attached themselves to the word of God and, and, and what God has revealed himself from Old Testament to new to this point. What the Holy Spirit has recalled to mind in the apostles, what, what Jesus taught them, they've attached themselves, anchored themselves in this instruction, in this teaching. And this is why Paul could say what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church was founded on the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. In a building construction project, the cornerstone is the foundation stone, it's the first stone laid down, and every wall is built off of that cornerstone, such that every wall is straight according to the cornerstone. So the apostles and the prophets built their lives, teaching instruction on Jesus. When Paul says that he was an apostle, he says, not by man, but by God. I don't teach what I want to teach. I teach what's been revealed to me by Christ. So Jesus is the anchor, the foundation, the cornerstone, and they built their lives and instruction and teaching off of the cornerstone. And you and I build our lives off of that. These early disciples did that, and we do the same. So the question for us is, is this our commitment as a church? I know that in this room we have mo most people attend this church, but we have a lot of guests that come through and pass through all the time. It's a tourist destination, the beach, Fairhope. And so maybe you're not here for a long time and you're going to go back to a church. Is that the commitment of your church? Is, is it the apostolic teaching revealed by God in the Old Testament through the New inspired by the Spirit, is this what your pastors are devoting their lives to, their instruction to? Is this what the elders of our church are committed to, submitted to, aligning their lives to, proclaiming, teaching? Is it not simply the corporate commitment? Is it your individual commitment? That this is God's revealed word, and I will submit to it no matter what. No matter how I feel about it, no matter how, no matter what my circumstances say, I will submit to it, yield to it, even when it says some things that I'm not super excited about. That's what the apostles did. That's what the teaching is. That's what they committed themselves to. So what that tells us, a second implication, is that the biblical teaching, biblical teaching started the church, but it was also the standard everyday meat and potato diet of the church. How do we know that? Because this word devoted is not only a, a statement of, of reality, uh, of, of they, they anchored themselves, it's also, it also has a, a quantitative element to it, meaning they anchored themselves and it's imperfect, continuous, meaning they kept anchoring themselves to it. 
They, didn't, they weren't just cut to the heart one time by Peter's teaching, by the gospel. They weren't just cut one time and then moved on. They weren't just convicted one time by the reality of their sin and the sinfulness of their sin and then just moved on from it. They weren't just cut and convicted one time by the grace and, and comfort of God's grace in Jesus Christ and move on to it. They, de- they never graduated from the gospel. They committed their lives to understanding more and more about what, who Jesus is, what he came to do, who and how he works in my life, and, and what it means for everyday living. It was not one time, it was continuous. It's the daily diet of the church. So they lashed themselves to the word. We see that in the first part of verse 42. But they also, they did something else. They lashed them. They had an equal commitment to lashing themselves to one another. And that's the the next word, really, in the sentence. It's fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And here's, here's something they understood immediately. They understood it. It was a given. It was, it was by default. They did not question it. They understood that as, as a result, being pierced, cut to the heart, believing on, on Christ, they were given a new standard, a new status, a new identity before God. They were righteous or, or right before God. They had a new identity in Christ, a new vertical reconciliation to God that they did not have before. And they knew automatically, by default, that means if you have that new reconciliation vertically, then you and I have a new relationship, a new dynamic, a new commitment to one another. See, when we're redeemed and rescued, we're, 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 we become disciples. And by default, we are automatically disciples within a new people, within a new family. And that's what they recognize and they commit themselves to immediately out of the gate. The word is fellowship, and, and it, it's the Greek word koinonia. You've probably heard the word before or heard it and taught on before. And it, it means fellowship, but it means to share in something. Or to gather around a common thing and to share in that common thing. I've used this illustration before, this, this, this example before, but in C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, he, he talks about how friendship is born and how friendship is established. And, and he says friendship is established as you and I stare at something together and then we look over and we say, oh, you, you too. So we're staring at the, we're all staring this way. We're all staring at this screen and we're reading it and say, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Oh, you're you're looking at it too. You're with, you're, me and you are on the same page on this. So whether that's kids or whether that's what we uh, enjoy, uh, sports or or whatever that is, we, we share this thing. And as we stare at this thing and we look over and we go, oh, oh, you're in this with you, you too. You like these, this team, you like, oh, you, you're watching your kid play soccer. Oh, you're and you have this thing in common, that's where C.S. Lewis says friendship is built. The most basic commonality for you and I that you and I share, that you and I have, is our rescue and redemption in Jesus Christ. It's not simply that we're gathered in this room together. It's that we have been rescued and redeemed in Jesus. We are now no longer just strangers in a room together. We are family, whether we know it or not. And they recognized this new reality and they committed themselves to it as much as they committed themselves to the word. They committed themselves, they anchored themselves because that word devotion carries over from the apostles' teaching to fellowship. 
It's not just limited to the apostles' teaching. They weren't just anchored to, stationed next to, hugging. I don't know, this is getting awkward with this, with this podium here. They weren't just anchored to the word. They were anchored to each other in the same commitment, the same level of commitment, and the same duration. In other words, they, they anchored themselves in the word, and they locked arms together, and they would not separate they did not separate, even when there was disagreement. In fact, they acted different with disagreement. They went into relationship. They didn't cut off from relationship. They leaned into it further to seek further reconciliation. What would ever make someone do that? Because that's what God did for us in Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us, pursued us, rescued us. So naturally, if that's my new identity, then that's how I'm going to operate with you and you with me. We're going to pursue deeper, greater levels of, of relationship, even when you wound me or I wound you. I'm not going to cancel you. I'm not going to cut you off automatically because we disagree. No, instead, I'm going to seek to understand I'm going to seek to extend the same grace that was shown towards me in Jesus Christ. This was their commitment. And notice what this awareness, this new reality of this reconciliation to God, the vertical dynamic bending out into this horizontal new relationship, what it led to. It led to the, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Sorry, it led to fellowship, and, and that overflowed into the breaking of breads and the prayers. Which is a weird phrase. Why do you put the article there? Why is the in front of breaking bread and prayers? Well, Luke is likely talking about two different things. Because on the one hand, when he says the breaking of bread and the prayers, later in verse 46, he tells us what they're doing. They're going to the temple every day. The fellowship, or sorry, the breaking of bread and the prayers are likely the corporate gathering, the Lord's Supper, participating in the Lord's Supper together, participating in worship together, participating in the prayers, the recitation of the word and the, and the repetition of prayers that were taught to them. So there's a corporate dynamic of what Luke is talking about of worship and the Lord's Supper and, and praying together. But he says in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It's not the breaking of bread in verse 46. It's just breaking bread. So in other words, there's an, a corporate element with the Lord's Supper and worship and prayer, but there's also a smaller element of just simple hospitality, of opening the home and sharing the table and listening to one another. And spending time for, with one another. And there was certainly, as we'll see in Acts, an element to instruction. Paul in chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, Paul is teaching. And you guys give us a hard time for how long we teach. Paul taught so long, he put a guy to sleep and he fell out a window and died. And then he walked downstairs and said, got to get up, back to it. And he went back and taught until daybreak. He didn't even bat an eye. But what is he doing? He's teaching in the context of a home in this common fellowship, this shared meal. So there's a corporate element and a smaller element that Luke is talking about that they are committed to. It's not just the corporate gathering. They're not committed to just gathering together in a big room and, and hearing the word. They're, gathered, they're also committed to, to gathering together in a local context and talking it out further and, and, and application further and, and spending time together and loving one another and praying together and, and, and just listening and encouraging and talking and studying the word and being taught and teaching. All of these things are happening. And this is their commitment. 
As committed as they are to the word, they're equally committed to one another, to this kind of love, to this kind of service, to this kind of sacrifice. So what are some implications? We've already kind of said it, but, but verse 42 tells us they were devoted. That is a continuous thing. So they're doing this on a regular basis. It's, it's, it's not a one-time occurrence. It's not simply a once-a-week occurrence. They actually do this day by day. So it's ongoing and it's regular interaction with one another, encouragement, recognizing I desperately need you locked arms here. I cannot do this. I cannot do all that we're taught here. I cannot live the Christian life apart from you, individualistically from you, Lone Ranger all by myself. I desperately need you. And you desperately need me. This is their commitment here. So if gospel community in both large and small formats was so important and so treasured and so vital to them, we have to ask, is it as important, treasured, and vital to us? Is it as important and vital and treasured to you and I? Is it the regular pattern and habit of our lives that we gather corporately, but we don't just gather as strangers in a room. We seek with all our effort, intentionality, and devotion to push past the superficialities into more intimate friendships in the room and outside the room in smaller gatherings. Is this our commitment? Is this what we treasure? Now, now. Why did they do this? Why were they having such a commitment to the word and a commitment to fellowship or community, gospel community? It says in verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All can mean, it means fear, it means reverence, it means respect. It means to stand in awe of what? Of God. How do we know God is present here? By signs and wonders, by the, by the supernatural act that God's presence has come and, and, and dwelled in the Spirit in these believers, and they began to speak, and people began to hear the gospel in their own language. By the supernatural act that I actually want to sit at a table with you, you who, me and I, you and I were natural-born enemies. That's, that, we, we would not normally get along. They're committed to this gathering, this commitment to one another. Regardless of the differences that they have, that's a supernatural reality. That in and of itself is a sign and wonder. Look around us. We are so diverse. We, we, our first service, I, I said, we, we even allow Californians in this room, right? We got a couple here. We allow some Massachusetts people in this room. Can you believe that? We, we, we have so many different people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, so many different places in life, so many different ages. Look around the room. So many different statuses in marriage. We have different races in our church. Like, this is a miracle of miracles, Because we would not naturally associate. We have something that's changed us, and that change is Jesus. And now because of the gospel, it brings us together. It doesn't send us apart. certainly sends us out, but it doesn't send us apart. It brings us together, and they are recognizing that. When you read signs and wonders, that language will be used throughout Acts, and it's a language that becomes shorthand for the presence of God is in their midst. How is the presence of God in their midst? Certainly in the speaking and proclaiming of the languages, but he's in their midst because he has come to indwell them in the Holy Spirit. 
And they're shocked and they're in awe that he would do this, that he'd be so gracious and so kind to rescue them. That, they, that he would even bring us together, we who are so di- different. And so they f- they're, they're in awe of God's holy presence among them. The conviction of sin, as I said, is, is felt more than just this one occasion with Peter. It's ongoing. The, the comfort of grace is more than this one occasion. It's ongoing. They never graduate from the reality that they are sinners and in desperate need of a Savior. And God provided one in Jesus. They're floored by that. And so what does it lead to? Faithful obedience. I want to know more. Teach me more. Show me more. I want to serve. I want to give. I want to grow together. I need you. Let's be in community together. This this natural overflow. This is the pattern through the whole Bible. This is the pattern. If we go back to Exodus, God announced his grace in Exodus chapter 19, descended on the mountain, and it says the people trembled. Awe, respect, fear. God is infinitely holy. But he doesn't crush them. He provides them a mediator. And through the mediator, his instruction is given. And what do they do in response? I can't believe that you would rescue us out of Egypt. I can't believe that you'd be so kind to us. I can't believe that you didn't crush us. Instead, you came to us and rescued us. We can't help but want to obey your teaching. We can't help but want to know more. We can't help but then to apply it in relationship to one another. It's the natural overflow. Grace is the natural response to grace. The gospel changes us and it leads to change relationships and it leads to change action outwardly. And that leads us to the next element of what we see here in this text, and that's gospel generosity. It's another byproduct of the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, you could argue it's evidential of the evidence, it's evidential of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So the overflow of this gospel transformation leads to this commitment to to scouring the word for Jesus. And, and, And as they grow in their understanding of Jesus, they begin to recognize their new relationship to one another. And as they grow tight fisted on who Jesus is and tight fisted on who they are as a community, as a family, they grow open handed and generous with their stuff. As they see the treasure of heaven, the treasures of this world become trinkets to them. Secondary, worthless, amounting to nothing in comparison to the staggering riches they've been given in Jesus and the staggering riches they've been given in one another. And so it changes their perspective. They they have a new relationship to God and they have a new perspective on one another and that leads them to a new perspective on their things. Oh, your family, you have a need? How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I befriend you? How can I be a friend to you? What can I do? Help, let me help. Let me serve. I'll do it. I got it. I'll take care of that. That's the commitment that naturally overflows. And notice what it says here. It says they were together and had all things in common. Anytime you have the word together, especially in the early part of Acts, but throughout Acts, it means they were unified. They were of one mind. 
They all had the same perspective. Earlier in chapter 1, it says they were unified in prayer, together in prayer, meaning they had one mind in prayer. They were committed and working in the same direction in prayer. Now they're working in the same direction towards Jesus, towards one another, and towards their things. They are all taking this perspective together. They recognized that they're family and that they're in this together, and they were infinitely far more willing to share their resources. And what's amazing is they're not told to do this. It's not mandatory. It's voluntary. It's for joy. Where, why, what on earth would ever make someone relinquish their their, their things, to, to, to share them with, with others. Why would they ever dispossess themselves at great cost to themselves for the sake of the need of others? You hear it, right? They dispossess themselves at great cost to themselves for the sake of the desperate great need of those around them. They're doing what Jesus did for us. The King of glory who has all riches and all power and all authority at great cost to himself, dispossessed himself of that authority, that power, yielding it to the Father, sacrificing himself on behalf of you and I who are in desperate great need. You realize that this is what Paul appeals to. What they're doing in this moment is doing what Jesus did for them. They're reflecting on, the more they grow tight-fisted on Jesus, the more they understand what he did for them, the gospel, the more they're willing to be gracious and kind and generous with, with their time and their treasures and their talents and whatever other tea you can come up with. They're overflowing in grace. And this is exactly what Paul urged when he was trying to raise funds for Jerusalem on one of his missionary journeys, Jerusalem was experiencing a severe famine. And on one of his missionary journeys, he writes a letter. He writes to the church at Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, he tells them, he invites them to participate in the relief of the, the Jewish famine. And he doesn't play Sarah McLaughlin music. He doesn't put before them poor puppy dogs. He doesn't put before them malnourished children. He doesn't guilt them. Instead, what he does is he appeals to the gospel, to grace, and he points to the people that live north of Corinth, he points to the Macedonians, who themselves are experiencing a severe famine, and yet they gave lavishly. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they were poor. Their extreme poverty have, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, voluntary of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They gave, they gave according to their means, they gave and they begged to give. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. Vertical, overflowing into horizontal. The abundance of grace that they experienced. And when he gets down to it in verse 9, he says, Corinthians, you know what this is. You know what this motivating power is. You know exactly what moved them and melted them and, and what made them want to lavish their resources and beg even, even though they were in severe poverty. You know what it is. It's the gospel. It's Jesus who was rich, who became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. That's what moved the Macedonians to, 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 to relinquish control of their stuff. They saw what Jesus did on their behalf and they were melted and moved to do the same thing. In our text, it's amazing to me because it says, and, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings. And later in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Do you realize this is supernatural activity here? This is, an, this, this is why I say it's evidential. It's, it's evidence of gospel transformation here. Their hearts, their worldview, their minds, everything has been changed. And we see it first in the outward indications of what they do with their things. Why is this so profound? Why do you say this is supernatural and evidential? When it says possessions, possessions, the Greek word, it means land and homes. Land and homes. Now, they don't all sell their homes because it says in verse 46, they did gather in homes. But they were, they were selling. Who has land and homes? Plural. The affluent. Those with much, and yet they readily dispossessed themselves because they saw Jesus who had much became poor so that they who were poor could have the riches of Christ. But then it says belongings, and it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Belongings are little things, the things we fill our homes with. That's the little things. That's not the land and the possessions. So, so those who had land and possessions sold it. Those who had little things sold it. And then when it says in verse 46 that they received their food, that means they did not have food. And rightly, they would respond with gratitude. Thank you that you would share a meal with me, that you would, that you would share some resources with me. We were struggling and you, you met my needs. Certainly, they would respond with gladness. But it says they responded with glad. And generous hearts. So even those with little were moved by grace and gave. It doesn't matter what we have. What they saw was the treasure of heaven. And they grew tight-fisted on him and open-handed with everything else. With their homes, they invited people in. That's a sacrifice. They made a meal. That's a costly sacrifice. They, they share time together. Time is a sacrifice. It's not always about the, the finances. It is a thousand other things. But they did it graciously. They did it generously. They did it willingly. They did it voluntarily. Sometimes people have looked at this text and said, look, here is communism. Everything that's y'all's is the states, and that's what's supposed to happen. No, that's not com this is not communism. This is not socialism. Everything is yours and all your excess should be shared and, and automatically given to, to me and to others. That's not, that's not, this is not socialism. This is Christianity. This is grace on display, overflowing, bubbling up out of 
the response, the reception of God's grace in Jesus. This is remarkable. The more we see how gracious God is towards us in Christ, the more we see his patience, the more we see his kindness, the more we understand the, the, the gravity of our sin and the grace, the greatness of his grace towards us, the more we're willing to give those same things, forgiveness, patience, grace, kindness, mercy to others. Well, Neil, how do I grow in that kind of generosity? It's not by guilt. It's only by grace. It's only by the gospel. How do I do that? You attach yourself to the word which reveals to you God's great grace in Jesus Christ. You attach yourself to one another and we hear the stories of God's great grace. We see the generosity in our brothers and sisters and we want to replicate. It's by these first two things that leads to the third. And all of this leads to the fourth reality, which is gospel witness. Gospel witness. In verse 46 and 47, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. That when it says people, it's talking about more than just the 3,000, more than just the believing community. It's talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about everybody who's, who's here at this time, the larger community. And what does it say in the text? They had favor. That word means there was an attraction to these believers. Their lives were attractive. Their attitudes were tra- attractive. Their actions were attractive. What they loved was attractive. How they loved was attractive. The meaning, the purpose, the identity that they lived with, the confidence, the newfound reality that they matter in the world, not because of what they have or who they are, what you say or I say or anybody else, but because the God of the universe sent the Son, His Son Jesus to die for them. They have a newfound identity and a newfound confidence and a newfound meaning and a newfound purpose. And everyone saw it. And said, I want that. Not only their newfound identity, but their new interaction together. They they fought, they pursued, they struggled to stay together. Even though they naturally would not normally do that. They They have real meaning and real hope and real home and real life together. And everyone saw it and said, I want that. And then look at how they serve and look at how they just, they're not attached to things. There's a freedom to them. They don't have to have the newest and the latest and the greatest. They don't have to have all. They they don't even care. I want that. That's what this means when it says they had favor. There was an attractiveness to their lives. Everyone saw it. Everyone heard it. Everyone felt it. Because it wasn't just limited to the, to the community, it overflowed outward. Paul says in, in Galatians that we are to, to serve one another, strive to serve and meet the needs and care for one another. First, among the household of faith, and that word household means family. So it starts in the family and it overflows out into beyond these walls. They were experiencing, they were, they were seeing it. It was attractive, not simply in style, but in substance. There's something to them and I... Listen, your friends, your coworkers, your family that that would say they're unbelievers, they may never admit this. We know plenty of friends and family that have said it, but we know plenty of friends and family that would never admit it. But deep down, they're longing for what this text is describing. 
In fact, some of us in this room who are believers wish we had more of this. Because this is a glimpse at the kingdom to come. This is a glimpse of Eden restored. This is what we all des- we were created for and we all long for. And we're getting glimpse of in the- glimpses of in this text. And it's evident to all. It's evident, it's not just evident in this text, it's evident in history. The Roman Emperor Julian noted this around the fourth century. He said, The Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Everyone sees that we don't even care for our people, but the Christians do. They care for themselves and our people. There was a letter in the second century. It was a, or one of the early church fathers. They wrote a, a letter, a defense, arguing for the Christian faith and distinguishing it from pagan religions. And in it, it's called a letter of Diogenes. And in it, the writer, the, the writer says, one of the marks of the Christians is that they share their table with all, but not their beds. They're poor and they make many rich. They're short of everything and yet have plenty of things. In other words... The Christians have been changed. They're different, and it's obvious, and it's attractive. The surrounding community saw it, felt it, knew it. And what was the result? Verse 47b, the latter half. What was the result of this gospel transformation, their commitment to gospel teaching, their commitment to gospel community, the overflow effect of gospel generosity, and the overflow effect of their lips and their hands proclaiming Jesus to the world? Verse 47b, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Naturally, if this is the kingdom life and this is what it looks like and there's an attraction to it, the Lord is 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 adding to it's the Lord that's doing this. He's rescuing hearts. He's turning people. He's 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 transforming people. He's bringing more gospel transformation. It's not through building programs and lights and walls and and painters in the room. It's not through all of these things that he rescues. The Lord rescues. Now, I'll say it. He works through means and we know this. But what are the primary means in the text? The primary means in the text are gospel teaching, gospel community, gospel generosity, and gospel witness. It's as the believers recognize that that Jesus is the treasure of heaven and I need to know more about him. And and, oh, you too, let's do it together. And as we do this together and we share this life together, we overflow into serving and caring and giving and going together. And then we, we can't help but it's evident and then we can't help but talk about that discovery. And everyone sees it and the Lord uses those means. And he rescues the hearts of man through it and he expands his kingdom. So here's some questions as we close. Do these characteristics and these heart commitments exist at at both the corporate level of our church and the individual? Is this the, the heart commitment of our church and is it the heart commitment of your life? Are we relentless Do we have a relentless attachment to the word of God, to scouring it for Jesus, to to, to devouring it, to understand more about the gospel in order to yield our lives to it and, and to him? Are we marked by genuine gospel community? Are we marked by it? 
Are we committed to one? Do we see one another simply just another, just another gathering where we just walk through in and out of the room? Or are, do we see one another as family? I need you. Do, is, is this what we're marked by? A love and a commitment to sacrifice for one another? Is, 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 does it overflow into gospel generosity? If you're my family, that changes everything about how, uh, if you have a need, I, I, I'm there for you. What do you need? How can I be a friend? How can I be a, a brother or sister to you? As we grow in our, our grip on Jesus, our understanding of who he is and what he's done in our hearts and what he's done among us, is our hand, are our hands loosening its, their grips on other things, other trinkets and treasures? Are we marked by gospel witness? Is, is our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control evident? Is it evident? Is it evident in this room even? Is it evident outside of this room? Are we consumers or are we contributors to the broader community that we live in? Has the joy of our salvation loosened our hands and loosened our lips? Has the joy of God's grace in Jesus changed us so that we not only serve our own, but we serve the others that are outside these walls? These are questions we have to wrestle with, and this text draws out for us. And it's only a glancing blow across the tip of the iceberg of what this text has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word where you reveal to us your great love despite our great sinfulness. May we be pierced as, as the crowds were, pierced to the heart seeing our great sinfulness and pierced to the heart seeing your great grace. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal that to every heart and mind in this room and that you would amplify the teaching of your word, that you would take your word, help us understand it, drive it deep into our hearts and our minds and may it overflow into outward transformation, outward action, outward service, outward sacrifice, outward charity of time and charity of, of words and charity of, of, of the things we have, charity of our homes, char charity of our tables. And may that, as we do this together, may that lead to favor in the community and favor in, in family and friends that are unbelievers. May they see it. And may we open our lips and tell them about the treasure of heaven, Jesus, who changed our hearts and our lives. So that it leads to more gospel transformation and your kingdom is advanced. Thank you for this glimpse into the future reality of the kingdom to come. You've pulled back the curtain for us, Lord. Hold it back so that we can stare at it, dwell on it, meditate on it, be changed by it, and apply it, wring it out in the lives of everyone in this room. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.